Joe Bernard started BPS Space as a way to get a job at SpaceX, but now his rocket company down in Nashville has taken on a whole new life. In this episode, Evan and Logan talk to him about his journey to creating what he almost has, a self-landing rocket. I'm Nate. This is Middle Tech. Let's go. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles here in Lexington, Kentucky, joined by our new producer, Logan Jones. How's it going, Logan? It's good, man. Uh, Sun's out here down in Lexington. Just got me some dinner downtown and uh, using this new media studio at Base 110. Yeah. Talk about that. What's that space look like? Yeah. So this is actually my first freelance Friday down here at Base 110. Uh, Came in here to do the Randall Stevens interview with you and kind of got a glimpse of how awesome this place was. So decided to come back. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty good setup in here. There's uh, mics and everything that I needed to get set up. So I'm in business. It's awesome. I am super excited. We're all super excited about this episode. Uh, I came across our guest, uh, Joe Bernard. I was surfing Twitter. Uh, I'm an Elon Musk uh, junkie, as many entrepreneurs are, SpaceX and Tesla, of course. Uh, and so when I was scrolling through Twitter, I saw uh, model rocket doing exactly what Elon Musk's Falcon rockets and heavy rockets are doing. Uh, and I was amazed. Um, and I had to follow him. I had to give, you know, dig deeper, see what was going on. Uh, and so what he's doing is he is building model rockets, but it's not your typical model rocket. You know, most model rockets just fly up uh, and they come crashing back down. And so what he's trying to do is actually replicate what SpaceX is doing, launch a rocket, uh, and then try to land it. So it was super fascinating. He's filming the entire process. Uh, we're going to talk about it. You know, we're going to talk about how he's been approaching that and why he's doing it. So Joe Bernard, thank you for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So where are you at? So I'm out of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, not too far away. Um, I live down here, have the hot chicken, and lots of open space for launching rockets. Hell yeah. Yep. So... Let's just kind of start at a high level. Talk about your background, uh, where you're from, education, uh, and how you got into what you're doing. Sure, yeah. Um, So for most of my life, I've been into two different things. One is um, engineering, which fits pretty well into all of the rocketry stuff. But the other is uh, actually music and audio production. So um, through high school, just kind of did a lot of these uh, engineering projects and music projects. Was part of a lot of the bands there and... Um, it's also part, if any of you are into tech stuff, it's part of the, uh, first robotics competition. Um, it's a pretty popular robotics competition. And so, uh, when it came time to decide where to go to college, I went to the Berkeley college of music to study audio production there. That's up in Boston. Um, and about halfway through college, I ended up picking up the video camera, um, getting into uh, video production, figured I could probably make a career out of that. You know, it's actually... Um, It ends up being a pretty good situation when you're surrounded by musicians. Most of them need music videos. So being a video producer uh, ends up being a great way to uh, make some money up there. Um, I ended up graduating Berkeley um, and just sort of staying in the film industry there. Shot a lot of wedding videos, uh, continued doing the music video thing. And in 2015, um, I saw a video online of uh, Elon Musk's space company, SpaceX, um, testing one of their rocket landings. So 
what they're doing is they're down in Texas. They're, they've got these massive, you know, 17-story rockets. Uh, they send them up. This is before they had landed anything. So they're just testing these tiny little hops, right? They're sending the rocket up, I don't know, about, you know, 100, 500 meters. Um, doesn't go up that high, but uh, it hovers a little bit and comes back down. And, man, if you've ever seen it, looks like CGI. It's like... Looks fake, for sure. It's, it's unreal. Because um, people got to realize these things are the size of a building. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, and they, you know, they, they're SpaceX, too. They've got money. So they shoot it with crazy nice cameras, and it really looks like a render. Um, so I saw this and just kind of got hooked. I figured, like, I have to I have to work for these people, or I have to at least work in rocketry somehow. And uh, the joke is... Uh, the joke is at Berkeley, they teach you how to say, do you want fries with that? Um, because it's it's a music degree. But uh, that's that sort of remains true. You know, a music degree doesn't get you super far in the aerospace industry. So um, I figured, you know, I wasn't in a great position to, like, go back to school, spend four more years on an engineering degree to try to get an interview with SpaceX. And even then, you know, getting an interview with that company is um, they hire, like, the the top, the best of the best people. So it's really unlikely. Um, anyway, I, I figured the other way I could do this is I could teach myself and then I needed a way that I could demonstrate to others that I, I did know what I was doing. And so I just started documenting my progress. My, my goal was if I could land a model rocket, which is obviously easier than landing a real rocket like they're doing, um, but still a pretty serious technical challenge, figured if I could do that, post my progress online and sort of show my process, um, I might be able to show up at SpaceX's doorstep, metaphorically speaking, and say, hey, you know, could I get an interview? Um, and so that's kind of how it got started, at least. That's like my background in to getting into this stuff. And since then, it's just sort of spiraled out of control. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I love how you really took that initiative to teach yourself and kind of take that leap. A lot of people obviously have trouble with that. So it's amazing that you had that courage to do that. So, so where where in the world do you start to learn about this kind of uh, this kind of thing? Uh, are there forums online? Are there people already trying to do it? Where did you start? Actually, there's a, there's a pretty good story about this. Um, I went to like before I did this. You know, the smart thing to do is you, you come up with an idea and then you do a little research. So uh, there's a there's a place online called the Rocketry Forum, um, which does exactly what it sounds like. It's a forum for rocketeers. Um, and I looked up if anyone had tried to propulsively, that's what it's called, it's propulsive landing. Um, so I looked up if anyone had tried this um, and found this thread of comments where <laughs> someone had written like several paragraphs about how this would never be possible. Like all of the different technical challenge and he ended up with like, this is a nice thought experiment, but it won't happen. Um, I, have a, I still have a screenshot of that. Um, and he is... <laughs> This year, I think he's going to be proved wrong. But um, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way you learn about stuff is you just like you set your tolerance for frustration really high and then you just start getting your hands dirty. So like um, I bought a 3D printer and started printing parts with um, basically very little knowledge of how to use CAD software. So that's like computer design for building rocket parts. Um, you know, you you get a 3D printer and some CAD software and you just like. It's, I don't want to say like grit because you're just sitting at a computer, but you just sort of, you just sort of start. I know that sounds unhelpful, but uh, that's kind of it. You both are entrepreneurs, yeah. so you probably have a good sense for what I'm talking about. It just takes like, you have to not worry that your first few versions are going to fail. 
Yeah. Because they are, and you're just going to get yeah, better from there. Yeah. You just got to expect it. It's part of mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, one thing we talked about, we chatted a bit before we started recording, was product design. So how do you approach that when it comes to uh, building these rockets and, um, you know, doing doing it well and making sure that you're improving each time? Yeah. Um, so I, I had been building rockets for about a year and a half um, and still working in the wedding industry. And at some point, I, you know, took a look at my bank account and how much money I had spent on rockets. And it was like, oof. Time, time to make the project sustain itself a little bit more. So I, I pivoted a little bit. You know, it, it hadn't actually been a business, so pivot is may, maybe not appropriate. But um, it hadn't been any type of money-making business. Um, but I, uh, I decided I could probably take all this knowledge that I had learned. You know, no one had really been doing one of the one of the core technologies that um, my company does is called thrust vector control. Um, this is the same stuff that. Um, this is the same technique that most launch vehicles or rockets use to actually get payloads in space. So uh, what ends up happening is you balance the rocket on the motor like a upside-down broomstick or something like that. And so you move the motor around just a little bit to keep things upright. Um, anyway, I had learned a lot about how to implement thrust vector control in model rockets, which usually use fins, which are much simpler. Um, and I figured I could put together a kit for this. So... Building, I had never built a product before. I had never built something for anyone else. So um, my approach was I did a bunch of customer surveys, sort of posted, I hosted a uh, big old web form, web form um, and then used the publicity that the project already had, posted on a bunch of different sites um, and just got as much feedback as I possibly could about um, price range that people expected, features, uh, feature sets that people expected. And obviously like, this is not a perfect approach because people sometimes don't know what they want or, or misunderstand. Um, but that's, that was kind of how I got started. Um, I did a really small uh, run, like production run of these kits after about nine months of product development. I sent them out. It was literally called Signal Alpha. So it was like an, even before a beta version. Um, that was the, the name of the product. And I just got a ton of user feedback from like, in terms of things that people told me and then also noticing how people were using the product. So like you have all of these instructions that people, you know, they can't read clearly. So you have to rewrite it. So it's a little bit better. Um, it's a lot of tiny things like that, honestly. Um, yeah. that's, that's sort of my approach to the product design stuff. Yeah. And it seems like you're doing almost like the, the full stack, the full system of the entire rocket from the hardware to yeah. the computer on board to the software Mm-hmm. Um, kind of paint the picture of what happens when you combine all those things together. Um, you know, if somebody hasn't seen one of your rockets, describe it the best you can when all the pieces come together. Yeah. I mean, from a physical standpoint, they're about a meter tall. It's about three or four feet tall and about a kilogram in mass or about 1.6 pounds. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're pretty tiny, but they're bigger than some smaller model rockets. Um, but it's it really is the full stack. It's everything. Actually, there's a good it's kind of a funny anecdote about this. So uh Rocket motors, like what actually produces the thrust to push the rocket upward, that's called propulsion. Um, and uh, I named my company BPS, which stands for Barnard Propulsion Systems. Um, and the best part about this is I named it before I had actually gotten into rocketry. <laughs> and we do, we do every part, every piece of design for the rocket, every single piece except propulsion. Um, so <laughs> don't don't name your company before you actually know what you're doing. Hilarious. But uh yeah, so we design all of the parts that move around on the rocket. So these are like the mechanical parts that deploy landing legs. They deploy fins. They pop out parachutes when it's time 
to land or they, you know, fire motors, they gimbal the motor at the bottom. These are a bunch of mechanical parts that we design in-house. Um, they're also manufactured in-house. I mean, it's just a 3D printer, but um, we also, I, I wrote all the flight software. So this is a lot of, um, it's getting pretty complex now. There's a lot of error checking stuff in there, um, but that's all the flight software that guides the rocket and keeps it stable. Um, I've built the electronics for the rocket too. So this is all, it's an in-house design printed circuit board that has um, a custom set of sensors uh, that are just really well tailored for the task of flying a model rocket. Um, and then there's a lot of um, documentation that I also wrote out for it. So if you build your own product or if you build your own project, it's really easy to skip the documentation part um, and because you know exactly how it works. But turning your project into a product uh, forces you to write down exactly how it works and it forces you to think about it in a much different way. Um, so does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and later in the, in the episode, I want to touch on, you know, that following you've built by documenting what you're doing. But, you know, last question related to actually building these rockets, um, the heart the hardware themselves, what was the most difficult part? Was it the, um, you know, constructing the rocket control, uh, the thrust control, um, the software, talk, talk about what the most difficult part was. So uh, there, it's it's a bit of a two-parter. Um, it's both the software, like the mechanical design is not actually that hard. You can do iterative design pretty well with that. Um, the, uh, the electronic or, yeah, the electronics of the rocket is actually not that hard too. It's, it's mostly simple circuits. Um, the hardest part by far is designing uh, really good flight software. So let's say that your rocket is going up and a sensor fails during flight or, you know, something detaches or, you know, something goes wrong. Um, the, the, where just about all of the intellectual property for BPS is um, it's, it's in the software. So it's, there's a lot of safety checking stuff, you know, it's rockets. You don't want it to hit anyone. You don't want it to mm-hmm. go wrong. Um, that was definitely the hardest part. Um, and it's the reason that um, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's just a lot of good anecdotes about failure here, but the first year, uh, the first full year of launches, it was like 10 launches, each one, a new rocket um, failed completely. Um, and so there's a lot of loss there, but uh, it was all, it was almost all software based. So it was very hard to develop that stuff because there's no publicly available flight software online um, for interesting legal reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, all of this iterative design and your, your product design is hopefully leading you to the point and you're very close because I've been watching you to actually landing one of these rockets and you're taking this kind of stage by stage. Um, talk about how you're approaching the stages of, uh, you know, landing and then launching these rockets and then talk about how close you are to actually landing one. Sure. Yeah. So we are really close. Um, I say we, it's just me. It's like a habit. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's cooler to say we, but, uh, yeah, it's getting really close now. Um, the the approach that I've taken, uh, this is another thing that sort of has changed throughout the program. You know, when I started, I built these really complicated rockets that were supposed to basically get it right on the first try. They were built to um, launch and land in the same flight. So there's a lot of complex building that goes into there. There's a lot of precision manufacturing um, and it ends up being really expensive in terms of money and time to build one of these vehicles. And 
if one thing goes wrong, I mean, the thing about rockets, I think Elon Musk tells this joke too, but the thing about rockets is like, you can't, if you get one thing wrong, you don't like get a B plus on the test. You like fail the test completely. So you can't like the, the passing rate for rocketry is 100%. Um, So if something goes wrong, especially in these early tests, you lose all of that development when it smashes into the ground. Um, And so I ended up changing my test approach about a year into the project where I just would build the minimum viable vehicle or the minimum viable software or the minimum viable hardware or whatever um, and only get these isolated parts to work on their own. I made sure that they worked. I made sure that they were super reliable. And only after that would I combine things. And so at the outset, it ends up being a little bit more expensive, except like it, it looks a little bit more expensive up front, um, but in the long run, it's it's way better to test your systems in isolation and then start to combine them. And then, you know, there's a whole host of other problems that come with that, but um, yeah. that, that test approach has actually worked out really well. So in that vein, um, right now we have two different programs. There's actually like six different programs, but um, there are two main ones. So there's a program that I'm running on the, they're both on the BPS YouTube channel, but... Um, We've got a rocket that is solely for launching, um, and that's focused on the ascent portion of the flight, so that's going up. And then we have a rocket that's focused on landing, and that's the descent or going down part. So um, you just you separate these programs out. You can solve a lot of the problems individually. It makes it a lot easier on the development process. If something goes wrong, it's a lot less expensive. So that's that's sort of been the approach so far, and it's worked pretty yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching. So you're dropping... Uh, when you're trying to land it, you know, the the stage when you're trying to land it, you're dropping it from a drone. Talk mm-hmm. about uh, what goes into um, actually landing it when you're dropping it. Um, you know, the, the thrust vectoring is one of the big pieces I've been watching you talk about. Yeah. Um, and you got it so close. You got literally inches. It kind of bounced when it hit the ground and sadly went over. Yeah. You're so close. Talk about, you know, how close you actually are. And, you know, what that last landing stage is actually um, and, and what it involves. Yeah, it's like torture. It's so close, man. Yeah, um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 been really tough. It's it's one of these things where um, I think a good analogy, it feels a little bit like it's easy to talk about this in the abstract, too. I feel a little bit like I'm climbing a mountain in the fog where I know I'm getting closer to the top. I know I'm getting closer to landing, um, but I actually I. I kind of have no idea how close Um, each time I make an improvement, it gets a little bit closer, but some new problem is revealed. It's like the, uh, the joke, it's like 99 bugs in the code, take one down, fix it around. And now you have 120 bugs in the code. Um, (laughs) It's kind of like that. So, um, you know, the rocket right now, the test we're running, it drops from a drone, um, drops from a UAV at about 30 meters above ground level. So that's about a hundred feet. Most of my math is done in metric, but, um, drops from about 30 meters, uh, it falls for a little bit, and then it, it brings up that the thrust on the motor. So it, it fires the motor. The motor comes up to thrust and starts slowing down the rocket. And there are tons of things that have to happen in the flight software while this is happening. Because if you don't, the first thing you have to do is you have to keep the rocket stable while it's falling. And so you have to sort of gimbal the motor or, or tilt the motor back and forth in different directions to make sure you're keeping the rocket upright. Um, the other thing that's actually been really hard to solve is keeping it from sliding side to side. So you mentioned that bounce and that it fell over at the end of the, 
uh, flight in the most recent one, and that's because it was sliding to the side a little bit. So fixing that problem has been really tough. Um, I'm thinking we may end up having to use some sort of opti optical flow imaging technology to actually get that dialed all the way in, but we'll see. Um, yeah, it's... It's easy to describe it from like a top level view, um, but I can get as technical as you want with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure you, I'm sure you could, and uh, just for the sake of of the guests who might not be too technically inclined, uh, high level is good for now. If they yeah, want to get yeah. too, if they want to get super deep, they should check out your YouTube channel. Um, so, you know, uh, Logan, I know you had a question about uh, regulation. Yeah, so I know I deal with a lot of regulations with drones and stuff. Have you ever been approached by anyone or uh, run into any problems with launching these rockets in Nashville? <laughs> Not in Nashville. Uh, one time in Boston, I got the cops called on me. Um, <laughs> I was in the field. You know, it's I was in the field. It's this guy. It's this kid setting up cameras. He's got a rocket. He's like running around, and there's no one else there. You know, I run all these launches alone, so I understand why people get freaked out. Um, yeah, they, they called the someone called the cops on me, and they were really nice. Like the Boston PD is pretty nice, but um, yeah, down in Nashville, I haven't had trouble. So I, at this point, I am super familiar with um, something called ITAR or the USML, which is the United States Munitions List. Um, that's the primary regulation you have to worry about when you're dealing with rocket stability or guidance technology. Um, so there are a couple of different regulations for model rockets, but this one is about export control. Um, and so for a small time we sold, uh, it's, it's offline now, but I sold this, this product, this thrust factor control kit, and there's a lot of gray area in this regulation that, uh, discusses what classifies as a model rocket and what does not. And so, uh, just for safety reasons, um, each sale of the kit had to go through a pretty rigorous verification process, um, to actually get sold. Um, and that was a, it's a limiting factor, but it also makes sense that the U.S. wants to um, limit the spread of rocket technology, which is exactly the same or very close to missile technology. Yeah, right. Huh. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So what's your, uh, what's your end goal with BPS space? Where are you trying to take this? I, it's, it's a little, uh, I suppose it's a little disappointing that it's nebulous. But uh, I just really want to see how far it can go, literally and figuratively. Um, yeah. I've got a, a plan, and I've started, like, save. it's pretty expensive, um, but I've, I've started saving up for um, doing a space shot um, in a year or two. And so what that entails is it's basically a game of, like, how much rocket fuel can you fit in the tiniest rocket? And then <laughs> how much... Uh, supersonic heating can your rocket withstand so it's it's basically you're trying to get above something called the Kármán line um and that's basically the international boundary or it's the internationally accepted boundary of where space begins um and where the earth's atmosphere ends so um that's the next thing i would like to go much bigger and much further um but right now we're just we're still growing and just developing as much as I can at the small scale to save a lot of costs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned you're saving, uh, saving money. How are you supporting yourself while you're doing this? Do you have a job on the side? What is, how are you supporting yourself? So it, uh, the business supported it or the project supported itself, um, for it, it, it had been supporting itself for a while, but, um, 
as of last year, um, it's now supporting me as like having it as a full-time job, which is crazy. Um, but it's hard to describe exactly what I do at this point. It is mostly supported by a uh, subscription service called Patreon, though. So what ends up happening is folks who are really into the project or, or want more details or they want access to like a chat room with a bunch of like-minded rocketeers or they want access to files and things like that, they join this Patreon service and they pledge a monthly amount, like 5 or $10. Um, and then all that money pools up and it goes to the project at the end of the month. And that's actually how the business makes money right now. It's it's become a uh, a pretty stable option. Yeah, Patreon's yeah. an impressive impressive service. It's helping a lot of great creators. Yeah, because you know, artists and um, you know creatives throughout history have always had a hard time you know monetizing what they do unless they're the the point zero zero one percent who are famous. Uh, so Patreon's an awesome service. I'm glad I'm yeah. glad you uh, are using that. That's awesome. So. Uh, you kind of mentioned it there that there's a community around what you're doing. Um, talk about that community from when you started to to now and how that's um, supported you and how um, that's developed over the over this period of time. Yeah. So the business or the the project rather has been around for about three and a half years, um, and for the first year and a half, it's pretty much just radio silence. Um, I think the main people who liked my tweets or saw my videos were probably my parents, um, but. As of right now, I think we just passed 63,000 subscribers on YouTube. Um, I'm up to 10K Twitter followers. It's it's really growing. Um, and uh, honestly, it's just been uh, the biggest thing that has helped grow um, publicity about the business. It seems interesting, but the biggest thing that has helped grow publicity is just me explaining more what I'm doing. So for a long time, a lot of this growth is through YouTube. Um, yeah. Uh, for a long time, the YouTube channel existed to mostly just showcase my work, um, where I would post final products or I would post final launches, launch videos, tests, things like that. But I wouldn't really go into the details. And where it really started to hit that curve on the hockey stick, uh, where it really started to curve upward was when I started um, adding these explanations onto the videos. So I would go over the test data and I would actually explain what's going on to uh, the people watching. Um, and so it, it ends up just being, it, it also ends up like making you a better engineer. When you have to explain what you do, um, <laughs> you automatically just make better decisions. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you have to explain yourself and, and help others do as well, or else yeah. they're thinking it's black magic. It's worth noting a couple of the other things that helped grow it too. Um, yeah, so sure. the explanation videos ended up uh, getting longer watch time on YouTube. Um, and currently the suggestion algorithm that YouTube uses uh, pretty heavily favors watch time. So uh, if you can get people, if you can get eyeballs to stay on your channel for a little while, you can get promoted automatically through the um, what YouTube calls like browse features. And so that's people who aren't subscribed to you. So I, it, I've spent a lot of time like learning about how the algorithm works. Um, that helped grow the channel a lot, too. Um, we also had uh, Motherboard, the, the vice company, sent a crew down to Nashville in the fall, and they did a small documentary on that. That was that was a pretty big for uh, project as well. Yeah, yeah, I watched that. It's got close to a million views now. That's crazy. Um, yeah, we'll be we'll be sure to share that video out because uh, that's a good a good uh, video form of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, throughout this whole process, whether it's 
building your community on YouTube and digging into those algorithms or building the rocket or the software, all of this requires failure. So yeah. you've obviously failed a lot and, and that's part of it. So talk about how, you know, failure uh, and, and talk about your approach to it um, and your mindset around it. I mean, the general consensus is that failure sucks. It's just like, it's, it's kind of a necessary part of a lot of this, but um, especially in the beginning. So um, I'm not sure. Do you guys know Sam Altman? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I follow a lot of what he does, um, and he has this great quote on failure. I'm not going to get it completely verbatim, but um, he talks about failure and burnout, where he mentions that um, when things are failing, um, you get totally demotivated. So like you're so a lack of energy and a lack of motivation correlates really well with whatever you're working on, just not working. So it's like this compounding effect where if things fail, you just don't want to work on them. And then he, he says, I find that I have like infinite energy when things are working. So what has actually helped me a whole lot is when things are failing, let's say I can't get something to work in the software. I'm troubleshooting a really tough bug. Um, it's hard to find and I, I don't really know what's going on. One of the best things that I've figured out to like hack my brain a little bit is um, just focus completely on something else. I know this sounds obvious, but um, I'll switch focus to, all right, well, let's redesign the website, something that doesn't need to be done right now, but let's do it. Um, and just focus on something else. And oftentimes solutions come to you after that. Um, but learning to deal with failures, I think, a pretty useful skill, especially in rocketry. I mean, things fail all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting to bring up. You know, Y Combinator, Sam Altman, he's got a ton of great, great insights into into failure and starting companies. Mm -hmm. um, I love that you brought up, you know, kind of controlling your, your mindset and controlling your attitude. I, I feel like people don't do that enough. They feel like they get in these ruts or they feel like the world's against them. They don't realize how much control they actually have. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really glad you brought that up and it makes sense. You know, if you're, if you're stuck in a rut, then go do something else for a little while. Um, get your mind freed and then come back to it. Um, have more energy when you come back to it. So that makes a ton of sense. It's hard now, to do too. Yeah. Like it's hard to do if you're stubborn. Um, and I'm, I'm like pretty stubborn <laughs> sometimes <laughs> in bad ways, but it's, it's hard to do when you, you want to just like clench your teeth and try to wade through the mud. Um, but it really makes a huge difference. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're good. Um, so talk about some of the opportunities that have come out of this, uh, this um, experiment, this, this, um, this business. It's not an experiment yeah. anymore. You're going all in on it. So talk about these, the opportunities that have come out of this. Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned earlier, but the, the original goal of the project was to get a, uh, an interview or a job offer from um, the, by teaching myself and then documenting it online. And by that measure, it has definitely succeeded. Um, I don't want to talk about the specifics, really, um, but I've definitely received a few offers and um, made it through a few interview processes because of this. And so if I can give any advice to anyone doing some cool project, um, it's actually really frustrating. No one takes this advice. Share your work online. Like, even if things aren't working well, you'll be you'll get better at whatever you do because you you don't have to share all the source code, but like just tell people what you're doing. Um, that seems surprisingly yeah. obvious and surprisingly few people do it. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the goal for the project has since changed. Um, it's now a business, which um, was not an obvious path at the beginning. Um, but it's, 
it's supporting me and it's supporting itself. So I, I'm just having a ton of fun on development and things continue to grow. Um, and I continue to just get more excited about like where this is headed. So um, sometimes online careers are short lived and maybe that'll be the case here. But for now, my goal is just to sort of ride the wave and see how far I can take it. Yeah, I love that. And I hope that, you know, the listeners, if there's anything that they take out of, you know, this episode, uh, hopefully, you know, they're super interested in what you're doing and amazed. But what you just said, where if you want to do something and you don't know where to start, but the, the best place to start is just to do something and put yourself out there and record what you're doing. And, you know, if, if we don't relate it to rockets, you know, that's definitely um, what, uh, an amazing example. But uh, uh, people in, let's say, K- Kentucky who love Kentucky basketball, you know, if you, if you want to be a writer for, uh, or a radio host to talk about Kentucky basketball, you can't just jump into something like that. Uh, you actually got to sit down, you have to write blogs, you have to start a podcast, and you have to get out there and get your hands dirty with what you actually want to end up becoming. Um, because, you know, it's like the law of attraction. You know, you got to start doing the steps uh, that it takes to get there and sharing what you're doing because people will eventually notice. Um, and it's almost a portfolio in a way. And you're right. You know, it makes a ton of sense, but not enough people do it. Um, so it's if like, anybody, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell thing. I mean, at this point, it's a little bit played out, but it's like the, the 10,000 hours. Like, it's going to be bad at the first part. And if you can if you can stomach it being bad when you start, um, then you can you can just go anywhere like it. Your work will naturally improve with time. It's it's not like you're going to let's say you want to be a basketball writer or a sports writer in Kentucky or something like that. Right. Your your work will it won't get worse. <laughs> It'll only get better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you just got to you just got to take that leap. Um, and, you know, I know for myself, you know, to make it to make it personal, I, I was always really quiet, you know, growing up. I never would have even thought I would have been scared to do a podcast. But, you know, me personally, I really want to do big things in the tech space. I want to build an audience and I want to really help improve the Lexington community. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I'm getting out of the community, and I'm interviewing these amazing people that are doing these things in technology um, and I'm putting myself out there. Um, and so personally, you know, I'm, I'm making sure that I'm setting an example in doing that um, because it's important. You know, it's not just me. It's Nate and Logan as well. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the big reasons we're doing this podcast is just to put ourselves out there and we all know where we want to be. Um, and so this is just part of it. Um, yeah. So I mentioned, you know, kind of our mission related to Lexington. Um, you're down in Nashville. So talk about what the community is like in Nashville around the technology scene and how they supported you. Yeah, so um, the decision, so I, I think I mentioned I lived up in Boston uh, after I graduated Berkeley, um, and I moved down to Nashville about a year and a half ago. So at the time, the business, like I had the LLC, I was I was registered, and it was, um, it was getting pretty close to the point where we were going to start to have income. But you really have no idea how things are going to work out, right? Like until you start making sales or until you start generating revenue, you don't really know what's going on. Um, and so... I knew that was a big risk. I knew it it had a really high likelihood of not working out. Um, and the decision to move down to Nashville was based on just a couple of factors. So most of my friends from Berkeley, from music school, ended up moving to one of the three big music cities, which are Los Angeles, New York, and Nashville. So most of them had ended up moving to Nashville. I figured, cool, it's going to be mentally, um, it's going to be a mental nightmare to start a company like 
just it, you have to it's like um there's another good quote i think i can't remember if it's an elon musk quote or not but starting a business is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss um and <laughs> so i moved down to nashville to just have a good support group around me um and not only are most of my friends sort of entrepreneurial doing music for their themselves there's a, actually a pretty decent startup scene here too there's like um there's a lot of those co-working spaces those are kind of overplayed too but like um there's a lot of co-working spaces there's actually a surprising yeah, number we works down there uh, right yeah yeah uh surprising number of healthcare startups here too um there's definitely like a a buzz of startup stuff in Nashville so it's it's been surprisingly good i kind of thought it would be like just move into the middle of nowhere in the south and it's actually it's pretty cool yeah yeah i i go down to nashville uh, pretty often uh, the mm -hmm. sec tournament that is down there so whenever uk is playing in that i I try to make my way down there, and then obviously Nashville is just a great time in general. Uh, Broadway and mm -hmm. that whole that whole scene there is is fun. Yeah. Um, so we always try to end the episode on a forward-looking, positive statement. Um, I'd love for you to talk about where you see Nashville going into the future, but but also how do you see BPS space and what you're doing uh, going forward and being a part of that. To be honest, I, I'm not sure I have a super solid opinion on where Nashville is going. I know it's growing super fast. Um, I don't know the metric. I think it's like 100 families move here every day or something um, or every week. That Maybe that's more realistic. Um, but uh, it's it's still growing really fast. It's changing. The roads can't sustain <laughs> the number of people that are here, but um, it's definitely growing. So the future of Nashville, I think, is pretty bright. Um, and I hope the same is, is true for BPS. I mean... Um, I kind of thought we had a, a big publicity spike from uh, this video that Vice put out um, in December, but it's it's been really steadily growing since then. So um, I think I think the future is is pretty bright for that too. Yeah, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we enjoyed it. Tell everybody where they can find you. So the best place is either on YouTube, and you can just search for bps.space, or if you don't want to go to YouTube, you can just type in your browser bps.space. We got that Squarespace domain. And that's the website.